Hi, I'm Jake Sirota, and you're listening to Line Break, a podcast from Shenandoah Literary Magazine. Today's conversation is with Irene Mathieu, a poet and practicing pediatrician whose writing is wrought across generations and epochs, but also in the rhythms of her own life as a black woman in America. We talked about how she thinks through her place in her own and in her family's history, and what time itself means in the face of historical patterns of oppression. Until you're conscious of the ways that you're just repeating patterns you inherited or learned very early on, you're not going to make any difference. You're just going to continue to reiterate the the status quo or the zombie-like slinky walk that we all just usually do. So uh, the first thing I want to ask is, you know, for people who might not be familiar with you or your work, how you would introduce it to them. I would introduce myself as Irene Mathieu. I am a granddaughter of New Orleans. My pronouns are she, her, and I currently live on occupied Monacan land in what is also known as Central Virginia. And I primarily identify as a healer. I am interested in healing both in my work as a pediatrician and also in my work as a poet and a writer, interested in naming and hoping, hopefully rectifying some of the um, some of the fractures in our world. How do you see that the the connection between the the healing of poetry and of medicine? Uh, I, I've never heard someone kind of holistically gather their life under something a, a moniker like that with with mm-hmm. such like fields that people usually think of as being so far apart. Yeah, so I see the two as intimately connected. Firstly, because they both come from the same sort of place within me, which is an interest in social justice and an interest in understanding why things are the way they are. And for, from a medical standpoint, um, we use science to do that. And biomedical science is the language of understanding illness and healing. And I think that's really important and effective, but it's only one part of the story. And another side is the stories that we tell ourselves about each other and about other people that define our lives and also ultimately define our health outcomes. And this can be at a societal level or it can be the individual stories that we tell ourselves. But I see every day how language, um, whether it's just the thoughts people have or the things we say about ourselves or one another, has a direct impact on our health and well-being or lack thereof. So I see poetry and medicine as two ways of answering the same question or getting at the same thing. And just as we can use science to heal disease, we can also use language to reshape the stories that we tell um, to create a healthier society. Do you do you see any kind of tension between the way that medicine is researched and practiced in a Western medical system like the one you're a part of and the way that poetry tries to... Well, I'm thinking about the way, the way I understand it, which admittedly is very close to not at all, is that you know, medical research and practice in the U.S. is, it places an emphasis or a priority on kind of taking the data of a person's illness and being able to extrapolate that and create generalizable treatness, treatments for people, whereas poetry, often the aim of it is to take the personal and the intimate and use that to kind of confront or kind of embody the abstract or the unarticulatable uh, aspects mm. of humanity. Do, does that seem like some kind of a tension? I think there is a tension, and I 
I think the biggest tension that I see is the fact that in Western biomedicine, we're taught to be certain about things. And part of it is, I think, the performance of confidence that is important to have in a healer. I think when you're sick and you're vulnerable, you want the person that you seek care from to know what they're talking about. You want them to have the answers. And the reality is that we don't know close to everything about the human body or about diseases or illness or why some people get better on certain medications and others don't. There's still so much we have to learn. And I think people know that on some level intellectually, but I think when we're sick and and we are uncertain about what's happening, what we want is certainty. And it doesn't feel good emotionally to hear a doctor say, I don't know, even though sometimes we don't know. And I think that's definitely um, a t- sort of a tension because I think that's definitely... Um, that's definitely not how poetry works. I think poetry explores those unknowns and poetry delves into the questions and it's okay with not answering the questions. Sometimes the best poems ask questions without answering them. And that's not the best medicine. You wouldn't want your doctor to just say, huh, it's interesting that you're having pain. What a great question. We can talk about your pain, but at the end of the day, I can't help you go home. And so I think there was a tension between those two things. Um, I think that on the one hand, um, we could definitely use some more uh, acknowledgement of, from all of us of the limits of Western biomedicine, the limits of science, because we just haven't been able to answer certain questions yet. But I also think that sometimes we are too quick to discount the role of language in people's illness and the role of stories. And sometimes we rely too much on scientific answers to things that we may not be able to answer yet with science, if that makes sense. Um, For example, sometimes I have patients who are struggling with chronic pain or other symptoms, and no one's been able to figure out what's going on, and they've done every test, and they finally get sent back to their primary care doctor to figure out why are they having pain or why are they having these symptoms. And I start talking to them, and they tell me, Um, oh yeah, I had a loss, a family member died a couple of years ago, or I had this traumatic event happen to me, or this thing, you know, from my childhood, I still haven't been able to talk about it. And sometimes that plays a much bigger role than we acknowledge. And so getting people to tell the stories that may be actually causing their pain, I, I don't think a lot of doctors are trained to do that or to think about that as a legitimate tool in our in our black bag of, of medical tools. So why, why did you first turn to poetry as a form of expression? What, what does it do for you that other forms can't necessarily or don't? Hmm. I've been writing poetry ever since I was a little kid. And I think I was first drawn to it because there's something mystical about poetry because the language is so different from the language that we use in everyday speech. I felt that it was more powerful or more mysterious and there was something really appealing about that to me. And as I got older, I began to realize that it was also a more convenient form because being in medicine, I often don't have a ton of free time. And particularly when I was in medical school and residency in training, you really don't have free time. And so it was a way for me to, um, it was a way for me to write something or read something and feel like I had gotten something out of it without spending more than a half an hour, an hour, um, which is harder to do with longer form writing and other genres. And I still think that's true that it, it does have a mysticism or, um, kind of a, 
that duende mystical quality that is hard to define, um, that you kind of know it when you feel it, that is a little bit different from prose. But I have been dabbling in prose as well more recently. And I guess what poetry does for me is it allows me to figure out the questions that I need to ask. And I can ask those questions more eloquently. Whereas for me, prose is a way of trying to get to the answer to those questions, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I, I get the sense from reading your work that your relationship to language kind of conceptually is sort of fraught in that it it seems like y- you are working with the idea that language kind of fails us in ways when we're trying to articulate or kind of account for suffering, uh, particularly in very deeply embodied and systemically rooted ways. Um, I- I'm thinking particularly about the, st- the language you use in Grand Marinage. Um, so how do, you, how do you think that language fits into that sort of you know, broader healing process if it is a kind of a limited medium? Hmm. Well, I don't think that language has to fail us. I think we allow it to fail us by not digging deeper and doing the work to find the language that we need to name things and therefore to rectify them. Because that's the first step in diagnosis, right? Going back to medicine, when somebody comes to you with symptoms or things that have been going on, the first step is to figure out what is the diagnosis. And once you have the language and you can say, oh, I know what this is, this is strep throat then you can very clearly look up the therapy for that and figure out the appropriate treatment and give that to the patient because you know that that's the treatment that's going to help them. But until you can name that thing, until you can figure out the name of the of the illness that's ailing them, you're not going to be able to identify the appropriate treatment. You could give them Tylenol all day and maybe that will help their throat temporarily, but it's not going to get at the underlying cause, which is an infection with the streptococcus bacteria. And so I think similarly, language has the potential to help us do that work, but I think we often stop short of digging deep enough to do it because it's hard and it brings up old wounds or opens up things that we're not ready to face either as individuals or as a society. And I do think in some cases we've lost the language. Like there are certain communities that have lost their languages or don't have as much access to those languages. And I do wonder you know, what are we losing or what kind of understanding have we lost because we don't have those languages anymore. But I still think that collectively humanity can heal itself if we are willing to use language to do the hard work that may be uncomfortable and may um, implicate us ultimately. That was something I tried to get across in Grand Marinage, that when you do this work, you find yourself implicated and you find yourself complicit in systems that you actually don't agree with. And that's very uncomfortable to face, but I think that's the first step in figuring out how to build better systems. Do you see a, a, a large distinction or any at all between the personal and the political then? No, I don't think there is one. I think the personal is political. I feel like people try to pretend that there's a distinction and it's easy to do when you don't feel affected by what's going on politically, but the minute that you're affected, it becomes personal. And I think the pandemic is actually a great example of this. Um, You know, we like 
at first at the at the beginning of all of this, the thought was, oh, that's a problem in China. It doesn't have anything to do with the U.S. And then once it got to the U.S., the thought was, well, it seems like it's a problem on the West Coast. We're on the East Coast, so it's not going to affect us. And it. It's this abstract political concern until it is in your own backyard. And public health is a great example of the interconnectedness of all things. And so, it doesn't. It was never only about China, or was never only affecting China. No matter what happens, everything is going to have a ripple effect down the line. And so, until you are able to visualize how that ripple effect is going to affect you, it's very easy to pretend like what's going on is a political issue or something abstract. But the political very quickly becomes personal and I think underscores the fact that it never was it never was purely political in the first place. It's always personal to somebody and it will be personal to you whether or not you realize it. I mean, it seems like there's been a, a definitely a hunger for the, well, the individual to kind of poke itself out of this kind of mass anxiety that we've been feeling. And I think that the the, the news that we've been seeing in the last couple of days about the protests happening all over the country is kind of, it reflects that and that there is this kind of, it feels like the the backdrop of vague existential anxiety has kind of allowed this anger to flare up in much more personal and individual ways. Mm. Well, I think that, I think that the protests are a manifestation of long-standing existential anxiety and terror in the black community that existed way pre-COVID. And I think some of the frustration people are feeling is that, you know, even though it seems like the world is ending, it feels like this is kind of catastrophic on all levels to have this pandemic um, that's really gotten into every corner of the world at this point. Even though things are completely turned upside down by that, the police are still killing black people and still killing people of color. And that is, I think, so demoralizing. Um, you know, it was always demoralizing, but the fact that this is still happening, um, even when we're starting to question so many other things about the way our society is set up, about should we all be going to work or not? Maybe work from home is actually a good thing in some ways. Maybe it's it's good that we're not driving our cars every single day. We're starting to question so many things in society that we had taken for granted for so long. But yet police killing black people is not something that's being questioned. It's still happening just as frequently. And I think people are just at the end of their ropes. And, um, you know, again, I think that's, this is a reflection of an existential anxiety and terror and sense of apocalyptic doom that the black community has been living with since the first Africans arrived in America um, in the early 17th century. So I'm not sure that anything has changed. I think that it's just become even more stark how how unprepared and unwilling this country is to face that and actually do anything substantive about it. Right. I was ima- imagining the ways you were talking earlier about how the you know, the individual stories are those that change minds. They you know, mm-hmm. person personalize an issue. And obviously that's you know, poetry isn't going to save the world on its own. But yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was really kind of floored because I remember early on in the pandemic in the U.S. when um, the president said something like all this news was coming out about health disparities and COVID and 
those of us who work in this area and who see health disparities on a daily basis were not in the least bit shocked. In fact, some of my colleagues were the ones to start talking about this and speaking out about it because we've been speaking about this and seeing it for years and years. And I was pretty shocked when Trump said, um, he actually asked at one point, well, why is that? Why is it happening more in the black community? And I was floored because I realized some people don't understand how social conditions and societal um, inequities translate into health outcomes. And I think I would have expected a response like, yeah, of course, you know, I just, I think that in some ways I take it for granted that people understand if you have discriminatory housing policies and you force a population of people to live in substandard housing and employ them at lower rates and discriminate against them and terrorize them, they're not, they're going to have worse health outcomes. Um, and maybe that's some, one of those things that seems obvious to me that needs to be explained to other people. But, and I think poetry can, can maybe be a medium for something like that. Now, there's been plenty of information that's come out and plenty of people who have talked about those connections in the mainstream news media. I don't know if Trump listens to the mainstream news or not, but it then begs the question of, okay, if the problem is ignorance and we're providing facts and information, whether it's through scientific facts or through poetry or through stories and things still don't change, then I think there's, there's a question of more than just a lack of knowledge. There's a question of actual willpower and political will, um, which I think gets back to issues of economic power and political power that are at the heart of racialized capitalism in this country. Um, and I don't think that has much to do with just a lack of knowledge. I think people, there are people who don't have any interest in changing things. Something that interests me in your poetry is your sense of time. I mean, you shift between the geologic time scales. You know, you're writing in terms of epochs in the you know the literal sense, and in terms of lifetimes and individual individuals. Um, so, I mean, where does your interest in history come from? Hmm. Well, i I think I've always been interested in history in a subconscious way, but I think I've become more consciously aware of how, I don't even want to say that it impacts the present, how it, it continues to be present and, and history is, is still actually happening to us and through us. As I've just gotten older and seen it, how history repeats itself, but also, um, for full disclosure, my partner was the one who gave me the idea to write Grand Marinage, and he is a public historian, and his whole life he's been really passionate about history and interested in the ways that we tell our stories about the past. And he suggested writing a book about my grandmother, and that was what sort of started me down this path of asking questions about my grandmother's life, which then led me to questions about my own life. And I think I very quickly began to see how, um, again, these aren't things that happened in the past. There are things that continue to happen and continue to reverberate through time. And I think that's, for me, the, the metaphors that I use in my first book in Orogeny around geological scales of history and time um, were a useful metaphor for describing some of the phenomena that we see in human life. Even though the scale is much different, the idea of fracturing and the splitting apart of continents 
mirrors the the fracturing of people and the splitting apart of groups into um, these communities that that then basically try to oppress one another throughout history and function off of um, power struggles. So I think there's something metaphorically interesting in in thinking about these different scales of time, but there's also something very literally true about the fact that you know, the life of my grandmother and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents has a direct impact and a direct connection to my own life today. And therefore, um, if we kind of zoom out, uh, you could say that for, for all of us. And at a, at a large scale, at a, at a bigger macroscopic level, it explains everything. It explains why things are the way they are today. So I don't see history as something that is in the past that happened a long time ago. I see it as something that's still happening that has, that continues to inform and will continue to inform the future. And a lot of people have said this, I'm not the first person to say it, but I don't think time is linear. When I was younger, I used to think time is linear because that's the calendar system that we're taught, that it progresses in a straight line into the future. And as I've gotten older, I've started to see time more as a slinky. It's like circular and it (laughs) kind of repeats and winds on itself. And, um, that to me feels more accurate and feels like a way of thinking about history that's that's more truthful. Can can you say more about the slinky? <laughs> well, the slinky <laughs> basically <laughs> so it's a slinky that goes through space. So it's I guess it's kind of linear, but whenever you move on the slinky you don't move as far as you think you did. So if you can imagine the loops of a slinky, if you start at one point and you go around in a circle, then by the time you get to the same point in space on the next loop on the slinky, you will have felt like you walked quite a way. But then if you look over, you see the other loop of the slinky right there, adjacent to your new slinky loop, touching the same one. So have you really gone far or have you just done all of this effort and this energy to walk around the loop and end up in a place that's very similar to where you started. And then I think each point along the loop has its parallel in the past, right? So a literal example of this is, yeah, we don't have slavery anymore, but we have mass incarceration. We don't have lynchings anymore, but we have police brutality. Um, We don't have things like the Chinese Exclusion Act anymore, but we have ICE rating Latinx communities of undocumented folks. So the names of things and maybe the people who are involved change over time, but the point is that the underlying sentiments and the underlying policy issues remain. And so we feel like we've progressed because we can look back at a calendar and say, look how many years have passed, but actually on the slinky, we're kind of in the same spot. So how do do you see that? uh, How do you how do you find hope in that? (laughs) Well, sometimes I don't. I mean, I think that for me, it, my level of cynicism and optimism varies, uh, moment to moment, but I think that I find hope in individuals. And I think especially during this pandemic, it's really occurred to me that, it's up to us as communities and as neighborhoods and then maybe more broadly as cities or towns to figure out how we want the future to look. And it's also in some ways 
more plausible to think globally and act locally. It's hard to influence national policy. Um, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't try, and I very much commend the people who are trying to do that. I don't think that I personally have the, the level of optimism needed to, to, do, to do that. Um, you know, much more than, of course, voting in elections. But when I think about real change, I think our hope is in the local and our hope is in the individual community. And if we're all doing that wherever we live, then maybe over time we can make a substantive change. Um, but if you th going back to the stories, I mean, if, if you're telling a story and it's about your neighbor or it's about your family and you're talking to, you know, your doctor or your kid's teacher or somebody else who's a who's a member of your community that you see on a daily basis, that has a lot more impact than if you're talking at a national level. So I'm actually getting more interested in how do we kind of create the societies that we want at a local level and focus on communities rather than thinking in this very large national or global or global scale. So I guess I'd like to finish off by asking you what and who you have been reading lately. Mm. Just looking over at my book stand, I've been reading, oh, I started this collection of The Essential Tales of Chekhov, Anton Chekhov. I haven't read a lot of Chekhov recently, and I was reminded that he is a physician, and he was a physician as well as a writer, so I feel a particular kinship with him, but his short stories are just so sharp and witty and, like, hilarious. So I've been having a lot of fun reading those. I've also been reading this book, Bad Advice by Paul Offit. It's a nonfiction book. And Paul Offit was one of the physicians at where I trained in residency in Philadelphia. And he's a national expert on vaccine safety. And this book is all about um, misinformation and science communication and or miscommunication in the media and the proliferation of celebrities and politicians and other people who don't have science backgrounds who have been sort of filling the void of good scientific information in the media. And he talks about how we can combat that. And so that's a really interesting book to be reading, particularly at this time. In terms of poetry, um, let's see. I just am starting to read Paige Lewis's new book, Space Struck, and I'm really excited for that book because I've read some of their poetry in the past and have always been really um, excited by it, so I think it's going to be a good one. And yeah, those are the main things that I've been reading lately. We're about to hear readings of two poems, the first new and unpublished, and the second from a recent edition of Shenandoah. The Forest Fire of Family Trees the problem is, we don't know that many ways of doing things. For instance, neither of us can fry an egg without public radio chattering in our ears, and there are worse blueprints for a home, like what my grandfather taught my uncle. We think we know people until we see the way they eat a banana, totally unlike how we peel and devour the fruit. Only instead of eating a banana, it's something way bigger, like loving another person. 
As the snowflakes get thicker, I hear myself say exactly what my mother would say when faced with the same situation, and I say it in her voice. It's not that I'm ashamed to share all my DNA and most of my life with these two people. It's just that I worry. It's not easy to recognize the odor of toxins you release day after day, which, when rearranged, spells door. You cross the threshold and think it's just the cologne of the world, not the smoke in your blood, not grass burning from the little fires ignited by your feet. Inside the big hot hour, man asleep, dog long sleeping, the afternoon languid and couched, my language behind the curtain, throbbing into the screen door, cicadas at its back, mites circling its haunches. What to say to the overcast hour? This moment twilight was conceived and I birthed a great mountain of worries. Maybe the city doesn't function because some people snore while others seize with anxiety. Who's to say that night will come, is all I'm saying. If we haven't learned how to talk to the ant, the sparrow, the lone black moth who escaped into the kitchen yesterday, brimming until my man cut him down with a dish towel, then who can understand us, is all I'm saying. No, said someone. Yes, said someone else. They were looking at the same thing. It was the hot hour. Fish were sold. Lawns were mowed. I didn't understand the person typing this at the kitchen table, biting her lower lip and staring into the backyard. I crawled up next to her. I patted her head anyway.